in the book of Revelation. And um, because, and this rarely happens, but um, usually I just, you know, we plow through a book, and this week I just couldn't shake that I believed God wanted to say something different, um, not something like different from what he has always said in his word, but just, I think, particularly for us to give us a word before we move, because I think one of the most important things we can do in our hearts is transition well, okay? So um, uh, we're going to look at, in Revelation chapter 2, just a word that he has to a church. He writes a letter to basically seven churches, and there's one in particular that I think is a, a loving warning, not just to this church in Ephesus, but also to us uh, specifically in the time and season that we're in as a, as a family. So this is a real just kind of, hey, family affair. If you're visiting with a friend, we're thrilled you get to sit in and, and, and listen uh, as we kind of walk through this together as a family uh, to see what God might uh, have for us. So here's, here's what I want to do is you turn to Revelation uh, chapter 2, and that's the last book in your Bible. So if you're like still figuring out where books are, just go to the very end, Revelation chapter 2. Here's what you do. Let me give you a quick um, just basic history lesson. Here's what you kind of see. And, and I'm, I've always been fascinated with revivals, with works of God, great awakenings, um, people who God would raise up to preach and teach the word of God in, in amazing ways. You basically, if you look at, look at history, you have these kind of highs and lows. Um, you, you hardly ever have just straight consistency. Okay, you have revivals, you have God in, in great work, you have lulls where it seems like he's not at work, but he's still at work in his sovereign redemptive plan through other ways and through behind the curtain, maybe not visibly, but, but through uh, other avenues. And then you got these big revivals again, you have these men raised up, and then it seems like the church is dead, and then there's a revitalization again. And so um, back in like the 1800s, you guys have... Uh, this guy named Charles Spurgeon. Many of you guys know of him. He was one of the, the, the greatest, they call him the Prince of Preachers. He's in London. He's preaching at the Tabernacle. Before that, you actually have John Wesley and George Whitfield. Uh, they say that more people probably flock to hear them preach than even the president today. Okay, so I mean, just imagine, you want to talk about a mega church, and we're talking mega, mega, mega amounts of people coming to hear the word of God preached. And through their ministry, you've got a guy named William Wilberforce, right? Um, who was uh, used by God, who got saved through their ministry to absolutely abolish uh, this, the, the slavery that was going on to change culture. And through his ministry of John Newton, right, who was a slave ship captain who came to know Jesus through his ministry. And then uh, you have all of these kind of branches kind of stemming off. You have uh, George Mueller who starts orphanages. You have um, Hudson Taylor that goes to China. You have all these amazing, amazing works of God. Then you have this guy named George Williams show up and he starts what you guys probably know as the YMCA. Right now, the YMCA had nothing to do with sports when it was founded. Did you know that? It was a young men's Christian association. And actually what happened was there were all of these young kids, these young men coming from the city or coming from kind of the, the, the sheep land into the city to, to indulge in more wickedness because it was more readily available there. So he saw these young men who needed Jesus. He, he took them into the YMCA, taught them how to love the word and pray and, and understand the things of Jesus and taught them the gospel and just an, an amazing, astounding, astounding thing that George Williams did. But, but here's what's amazing if you follow history, right? I think, George, I think George Williams would cry and roll over in his grave if he could see the YMCA today. Not because teaching swim lessons are evil, because that's not why he founded it. Right? He founded it so that young men might know and love Jesus. That's why George Williams started and founded the YMCA. And yet we see now that um, it has become something utterly different. Now why do I say um, all this to us this morning? Um, I believe that, that we as a people, that, that God is preparing us and continuing to prepare us and that God has done great things. God has transformed lives and he has redeemed marriages and he has 
restored many souls. And he has, some of you guys are now sharing your faith for the first time. Some of you guys are understanding the scriptures for the first time. Some of you guys are really connecting the dots from Genesis to Revelation and what the gospel of Jesus Christ means for the first time. It's been a, been a beautiful thing. But, but here's, here's my concern. Some of you guys are serving, going, giving, telling. God has provided in his abundant mercy and grace a, a home to permanently land three years into a church. That is astounding. That's an act of mercy in itself. And when I talk to guys in the network and guys that are planning churches, they're going, that, that's crazy that God would be that kind and answer those prayers. And, and here's my concern is we can get so excited and be all about these good, godly things. And if you forget Jesus then shut it down, <laughs> right? Like, like that's what happens. You'll see in the church in Great Britain now, it is completely dead because they've forgotten Jesus. Right? Everything that was founded there had been abandoned to just doing good works and good deeds. And so um, here's what I want us to remember is we can do all of this. My fear is that we will transition and God might be kind and he might stir in hearts. And if we do all of that and forget the name and renown of Jesus... Well, then we might as well close the doors. And so here's what we're gonna do. Here's this, I, lo- I love this, this letter, and he writes to this church at Ephesus in Revelation. He's got a word to seven churches, and we're gonna look at Ephesus. It's the ch- a church that the apostle Paul planted. Actually, if you look at Ephesus, and a lot of the New Testament letters, he writes to most of the elders and leaders at Ephesus in the New Testament, um, and, and here's what he's going to say to us. Um, I, this is what I wanna do, is look at, look at this from Jesus' perspective, and what he's trying to say to this church and see what we might be able to learn from that beforehand so we don't fall prey to these patterns. So we prepare our souls and our hearts well and learn from this church, you know, who had far more growth, far more Holy Spirit power, did far many more good works than any church you've ever seen and yet got confused and drifted and ultimately is warned by Jesus. Okay, so you take the best church that you think you've seen or you've heard about that has just tons of people and just explosive growth. The Holy Spirit seems to be moving there and they are serving and they're known for all these things. Picture Ephesus. Ephesus blows them out of the water. If you read Acts 19, you'll see astounding works of God through this church. And yet they reach a point where they start drifting and getting confused and forget why they were even existing. And so let's look at it together Jesus writes to them through one of his angels, Revelation 2. This is what he says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is super encouraging, right? I mean, if you read only up to verse three, you're encouraged, right? I mean, if you're a Christian in this room, if you're a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are super encouraged. If you go to Acts 19, not now, we're gonna go there in a little bit, and you just read about the works that this church did, and you look here, Revelation 2, you're gonna see that Paul basically goes into Ephesus, he proclaims the scriptures, he teaches the good news of Jesus Christ, and I mean, all of darkness starts to move to the fringe. I mean, you got people with disease who have, you know, have demons in them, you've got wickedness, people burning books, you have witchcraft happening, you have all of these things happening. God is just 
basically consuming all the evilness and doing away with it and replacing it with his righteousness. It's amazing if you read it. So all these people that are making profit off of, you know, sinful gain are no longer making profit. I mean, everything is just shut down that used to be sold for wickedness is now being used for the glory of God. It's an amazing, amazing thing you'll see. And I mean, guys, you can look at the Great Awakenings, Great, Great Awakenings uh, 1 and 2. I don't know that I know a better place in the Bible that shows a more profound impact of the gospel in a city and place than Ephesus, if you read Acts. So Jesus commends this church. And there are two basic things he says about them that are awesome. One, they've got great theology. They know their Bible really well, right? They know about Jesus. They know about his personal work. They also are enduring really well. These are people who show up, man, they are faithful. They show up week after week, month after month, year after year, and they are giving, going, telling, sharing. They are just generous. The community knows about them. People know about them. Their good works are off the charts. Their spiritual disciplines are amazing. Their community groups, they know where every book of the Bible is. They have every verse down pat. Their doctrine is good. They can even spot false teachers. Hey, that doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus. I don't think you're a true teacher of Jesus. I mean, he's saying they know how to do all of that. This is a great church. It's theologically sound. That word works, guys, you gotta, when he says I know your works, he's talking about works that are exhaustive. Like these people wear themselves out on the finish line for Jesus. That, that word works is like the Energizer Bunny where you just work and work and work and work and work until you are utterly depleted. It's like a runner who runs through the finish line and kind of puts his chest through the tape and collapses at the end because he's worked so hard in the race. He goes, I know that you are working. So when he says, I know your works, he goes, you are wearing yourself out for the kingdom. When he says perseverance, that's the word that means you stand up against anything that is in opposition to you. I mean, false teachers, bam. You got somebody who's coming in, like, proclaiming something false about Jesus or elders teaching something wrong or let's correct all those things. You've got amazing, amazing works in and through this church. You got pastors that need to be housed. You got missionaries that need to be fed and funded. You got people that need to be commissioned. You got people taking classes. Now, let's be honest. If this is all that was written, who wouldn't want to join the church planted Ephesus, <laughs> right? All of us would. I wanna be a part of that church. I mean, Jesus is saying, you guys are doing all of these things well. You love him, you've got great doctrine, you're enduring, you're pouring yourself out, you're loving one another. But look at what he says in verse four. You got all the disciplines down, but. You ever been in a conversation with somebody even like romantically, yeah, I just, I love you, you're great and all, but, right, you have the, the pit of your stomach, you can feel that, oh, this ain't going well, right, and they butter you up for like an hour, then they throw the butt. That's what you, that's what they're feeling. They're feeling this pit of their stomach. Jesus is going, hey, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
Okay, now who wants to be in Ephesus? Right? Right? I, you know, I think, I think a lot of us, if you've got a lot of church background or you have just grown up knowing things about Jesus, I, I would bet that I've, because I've seen it, we've probably all seen it, the more you study and the more you achieve and the more you know and the more you serve and the more that you give, you can almost become more unloving and forget who you love most. Right? And so here's what Jesus is saying. This is a heavy text. We have to do a little bit of work here because here's what Jesus just said. He says, doctrine alone and endurance alone and faithfully serving alone is not primarily what God is after. You, you hear that? Like doctrinal precision, perfect polity, church structure, you faithfully serving in every lane, you giving your tithe and your offering or everything every week, it's not primarily what God is after. Because that's what he's saying to this church, which is staggering, because he says here, yes, you've got good doctrine, you understand the truth. Yes, you're enduring well, you're continuing to serve, give, attend, gather, grow, but I have this against you, you've forgotten me. Isn't that insane that we can do that? That we can get so amped and excited about things that God does and forget the one who's doing the things that we almost worship what he's making, worship what he's establishing and not worship the one who's making it all? This is like, this is a profound warning to the church at Ephesus and to us. Profound what he's saying. Now I think we have to get a little clarification here because here's what we know to be true. We know that God's love for you, God's mercy for you, God's forgiveness towards you is indicative of nothing that you do or don't do, but only on what Jesus Christ has already done, right? So that's why Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. So if we know know that that's what is to be true, here you've got in this text, here's what he's warning the Ephesians, here's what he's saying. If all you have are all of those things, doctrinal precision, faithful endurance, faithful serving, and you even stand on those truths, but you have no love for me, no desire for me, if those are terminating in those things and they aren't a pathway to loving me more and seeing my glory and enjoying my glory, then I'm just gonna shut this place down. I'm gonna remove the presence of my Holy Spirit. I'm gonna still continue to do work and save people, but not through you. I'm removing your lampstand. So here's what he's getting at. Man, we can fill the seats, people can flock in, they can have all these great disciplines, but if there is no increasing love for prayer, if there's no growing in knowledge of God's word and of the truth, if there's no growing hatred for sin and love for the work of the cross and love for holiness, then he's going, it's vanity, you might as well close the doors. And if you don't close the doors, I'll just remove my lampstand from it. A really, really sobering text, a really sobering thought from Jesus to Ephesus. And although he commends them for all these things, if it does not lead to a deeper love for Jesus Christ and his person and work, it's not enough. Because some people love doctrines about Jesus more than they love Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Some people love doctrines about God and the Bible more than they love God. 
And that's the irony, right? As you grow in knowledge, as you grow in truth, as you grow in how you know things should operate and work, it really grows in a love for you. It really puffs you up and swells up your head instead of a humility that reminds you that, hold on, God is the Godhead of the church, that Jesus is the senior pastor, not me. And so God, I gotta grow in love for that one who made and established it. And so we have to be very, very careful. And so Jesus commends them for their works, but shows them that if it doesn't increase affections for Jesus, it's vanity. So Jesus says here, do the works you did at first. So the question becomes, what do they do, right? I mean, I wanna know that. Go to Acts 19, flip to Acts 19. It's gonna be on the screen too. I just wanna read this. It's an awesome passage of scripture that shows tremendous works from this church. If you know the book Acts really well, it's Paul's missionary journeys, and so you've got all these different places where he is doing great works. And and go down to verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. (laughs) This is so amazing. This is what they were doing. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. But then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's a great, great comical text. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on him, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Just circle that. That's your center point. What did all of this create? What did demonic possession being vanquished from city streets, what happened to all these illnesses being cured and diseases, what does it result in the extolling the name of Jesus? They're seeing the one who's doing it all. Then keep going, verse uh, 18. Also many of those who were now believers came, this is what it results in, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's your cliff notes on the church at Ephesus and what God was doing and what they were doing at first. Profound things. Guys, these are staggering things. Can you imagine being a part of this church? I mean, they're doing all of these great, amazing works through the power of the Holy Spirit, and here we have all of these things happening. Disease, demonic wickedness is being pushed back. Holy fear covers the city, and they extol the name of Jesus. All of their good works were birthed from and led to extolling the name of Jesus. They hadn't abandoned their love for Jesus. They were perfectly in sync. All that they were seeing was welling up in them magnification of Jesus Christ. All that they witnessed, all of the growth, all of the healings, all of the work of the Holy Spirit was resulting in celebrating, worshiping, making much of the name of Jesus. And in order 
to do that, you have to know who Jesus is, right? Because what you understand about Jesus informs that worship of Jesus. So here's what can slowly happen. If you start seeing the person work of Jesus wrongly or in error, then it's gonna result in bad dysfunctional worship of Jesus. And it'll lead to idolatry, which is sin, the worship of something else. So here's, here's what I'm getting at. If, if you don't see all of your good works, all of your serving, all of your giving, all of those, all the attendance, all the good, great, godly things that he does through you, if you don't see those things as worthless without him going to the cross, being a substitute for you, purchasing you in your place, it won't lead to extolling the name of Jesus, it'll lead to extolling the name of you. Do you see that? Like that, that's, that's how idolatry starts and happens. And here's what happens. You just start pretending to be more than you are, which always leads to an exhausting life. And, and so that's why you've got to see Jesus rightly. You have to meditate, gaze upon what Jesus, that's why the gospel has to be the centerpiece to all that you do as a Christian, to all that you believe as a Christian, to all that we preach as Christians. It has to be because if everything circles around that, then you're protecting yourself from worshiping something else, another functional God that will be dysfunctional in your life and cause deeper heartache, deeper anxiety, deeper pain. Amazing. So here they are. They have right worship. They have right extolling of the name of Jesus, they haven't quite fallen yet to abandoning that first love, which they ultimately do, which leads to idolatry, which leads to sin, where Ephesus thinks they're a really big deal. And he's going, if you're not careful, I'll just remove my presence. Because I've been doing all this. I'm healing the people. I'm casting out the demonic. I'm the Holy Spirit of God that's at work here. I'm the one adding to your number. I'm the one adding to your baptisms. Amazing, right? So you get back to your first love when you rightly see Jesus. So this is why it's so important, guys, because it's so easy to forget why we do what we do, isn't it? Like it's so easy to forget why we come and even gather. It becomes just pattern. Well, I come every Sunday, right? You, you can forget why you share your faith. I don't know, I'm supposed to do it. I, you can forget why you give. You forget, can forget why you want to walk in holiness. You can forget why you do anything. And Jesus is reminding them, you do all of this fueled by and centered on extolling the name of Jesus Christ. That's what causes, and it, it's this idea that, let's say I um. Let's say I, I come home uh, to Kristen tomorrow morning and babe, I'm, I'm not gonna do this because it's a busy week, but I will, Lord willing. I, I come home and I say, hey, hon, why don't you go out with all of your friends? And why don't you go get a pedicure? Why don't you grab some coffee? Childless, I got Jackson. I've already talked to their moms. They've got their husbands taking care of their kids. You go out, just enjoy a night out, enjoy rest, enjoy refueling, enjoy re-energizing. When she comes home, I've got her favorite dinner made. I've got two Reese's peanut butter cups right to the left because that's her, her favorite dessert, right? Got all those things just waiting for her. I got her favorite drink up you know, in, the, in the bathroom. She's got all her bubble bath ready. She, I got Kenny G on, the favorite song that she likes. Got it all, right? I do all of that. She goes through all those motions. She enjoys all of that service I give to her. She comes out all pampered, all done, just smelling great, walks up to me, gives me a huge hug, and she just leans in and says, thank you. Thank you for the way that you served me. Thank you for the way that you extolled me. 
And I look at her and go, well, yeah, I mean, I did it because I know that's my job description as a husband according to the Bible. I mean, I don't really love you. I don't really have affection for you. Driven. What happens in that moment? Every last bit of what I did is meaningless. She's going, I'm taking my lampstand away. Right? Right? She's going, man, my presence is over here now. She'd back away. She would get away from the hug. We all know that's true, right? I mean, that's, that's how easy we can slip into it, and that's how practical this is for us. That's what Jesus is getting at. You can get so caught up in just playing the part and being a Christian that you forget that if there is no intrinsic affectionate love growing up for Jesus, it doesn't matter because it's meaningless. All that just happened has lost its fuel and vigor. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And so my fear, my prayer is that as God continues to move and transform lives, that we pray he does. That we pray Bergen County looks different. We pray that, that people who are lost would be found, that people who are hurting and, and faced with injustice would find justice in Christ. We pray that all those beautiful, wonderful things would happen. Amen and yes. But if that's all done void of an extolling of the name of Jesus, it doesn't matter. We forget Jesus Christ in all of that, then it doesn't matter. So Jesus is saying here to the church at Ephesus, you love truths about me, but none of your loves for those truths about me are leading to love for me. They're just terminating at love for truths about me. You know, this is what happened at the church in Great Britain. Church is dead today. They've abandoned their first love. God did mighty works and mighty acts, and they've abandoned their first love of Jesus. There's a small remnant in Great Britain today that you can read about, even go see if you go over there. And God is faithful to build his church, and gates of hell won't prevail against it, and he'll, he'll have his answer and has had his answer. But he has removed, in a sense, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he can do that at any time. And so our highest goal as a church, and this is, this is I'm genuinely praying this. I actually prayed it this week a number of times. My, my highest desire, because I believe it's God's highest desire, for us as a church is not to simply be known for how many people we baptize. Even though that's a, a right good thing, we pray hundreds are in years to come. It's not our highest goal to uh, for the community to just know how much we love them, even though we pray that we're good neighbors and we're godly representations of another citizenship of another kingdom. My high school is not that people just know us for the ways that we just give, but the people when they hear about the church that they hear Acts 19, verse 17. I mean, they just extol the name of Jesus. That's who they're tied to. That's who they love. That's who they're found in. That's what fuels all that they do. So that God might never say, I'm removing my lampstand. Here's the good news, guys. He doesn't leave us depressed. He gives us two things. We're gonna actually do it together here. Uh, 
as a body. He gives us two things that will help us corporately and individually. One, the first thing you do, and this is if you're struggling in love for Jesus or you're basically in in a place that seems like a rut or stagnant, and even if you're doing great, you constantly go back to this. Number one, he tells us, he tells Ephesus, and he tells us by default, never forget who you were before Jesus wringed your neck and grabbed you into the kingdom. As soon as you start forgetting the weight of your sin and the weight of the right wrath of God towards you in that sin and him graciously in that place of sinful rebellion taking you as his own, clothing you with his righteousness, forgiving your debt, paying it in full, crediting the righteousness of his son. As soon as you start forgetting that and veering from that, as soon as that happens, it's a downhill slope. So the first thing is, verse five, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. He's saying in the beginning life of Ephesus, you know what they were doing well? They were remembering. In the beginning, they were just remembering well. They're remembering their sin. And, and, and here's the thing. Um, remembering this, remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ, leads to a non-passivity of sin. Because listen, I'm not worried about over-preaching grace. I'm not concerned about it at all because the Bible will over-preach grace. My worry is that in the right good preaching of grace, you think that means sin is safe. Right? But no, no, it's grace that pulled you out of your dark corner, out of your dark closet, into the light so you could be redeemed out of hiding to be restored in your soul. I mean, that's the the very place he brought you. So grace does not make you and give you a license to sin, Romans 6. It says, hey, it makes you warmed by Jesus. It makes you want to fight your sin, war against the sin, the residual effects that are still in your body because of what he's done. And so, man, by remembering it fuels and kindles your love for Jesus. That's what it does to remember who you were before you were saved. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or not. Oh, well, I have that church story. That doesn't matter. I mean, at some point, you were still Titus 3 pre. You were still Romans 3 pre. You were still Ephesians 2 pre. You were, you were still dead in your sin. Doesn't matter if you didn't think you were, you just grew up in the church, heard a lot of truths, like that was true about you and he rescued you. I mean, Titus 3 is an amazing passage where it reminds you of who you were before you came into the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus. So here's what I wanna do, just, just for a second, this might be a little awkward for some of you, but, but we're gonna have some conversation here. If you can remember when God rescued you out of darkness into his marvelous light, can you just say one word that describes how you felt? Nice and loud. Loved, what's that? Free, complete, whole, clarity, safe, broken, relieved, purposed, joyful, peaceful, secure, clean, what was that? Known, beautiful, loved, that's important.
That's important. I mean, it's so easy to get so swept up in the fanfare and the excitement of God's stuff and what he does and totally forget the name and renown of the one who saved you and what that's like. And as you do that, as you remember, let that well up in you great love for him. So as you remember, that leads to number, number two, he says repent and do the things you did at first. Okay, now that you're remembering, now you repent. Why does he say repent? Because repentance needs to happen because whenever you don't love Jesus most, you love something else more. So if you're not remembering right who you were before you were rescued into the family of God, then you're not repenting. And there are areas of your life that need to be repented of because he says repent because lack of, lack of for Jesus means love for something else. That's called idolatry and sin, which we talked about. So if you forget to understand that when you were fully known, as we heard over here, in all of your sin and God still fully loved you in Christ, if you, if you forget all of that and your love for Jesus wanes, then you'll start worshiping something else to be found in, to be secured in, to find purpose in. And we need to repent of those things as they come into our lives. Now, there's two ways to approach, approach sin. One is penance, right? Some of you guys are familiar with that. means I can somehow pay for my sin. The Bible never teaches that. He teaches something called repentance, which is where we look at with our mind and heart someone else who paid our debt for us. And then seeing that God saved us and secured us, we turn from our sin and turn towards the source of the redeemer, rescuer, ransomer of that sin. So we admit readily in our hearts, yes, I am broken, yes, I am imperfect, I have abandoned your law, I have abandoned your glory, I want to worship something else outside of you, I'm placing something else on the mantle of my heart, so would you forgive me in your grace, would, would Jesus be that right substitute for me in my place, I understand the weight of the wrath towards me in sin, I believe Jesus absorbed all that for me, and all the while as the Holy Spirit of God fuels you to walk right, you say, God, you're awesome, God, your grace is awesome. Your mercy is awesome. That's repentance. That's what repentance is. And you realize that it's against him only you've sinned. You know, every sin, even though it affects people, is primarily and always first vertical. That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. He had an affair. He off the husband. I mean, he, yet he's saying against you only have I sinned. He, he's so understood where sin went and who it offended that brought about massive restoration in his soul um, and, and this is why this is awesome if you go back to Acts 19 just later and you read as they extol the name of Jesus it leads to what them divulging all their practices them confessing their sin so here's what the, the Bible is going to say not forgetting your first love is inseparably, inseparably tied to you confessing and repenting of your sin. You keeping a good kindling in your heart for the name and renown of Jesus is always gonna be tied to you confessing sin, being aware of his grace and your deep need for it, and you're walking in light of that, in the light. Always. I love that it shows that. So my question here this morning for us is, are you, are you pursuing regularly coming back to Jesus always while simultaneously confessing your sin 
repenting of the things you worship more than his name, and then walking in the light. Not just confessing it, not just repenting about it, not just acknowledging it, but then doing something. Actively putting that sin to death and walking in the light. They burned all their witchcraft. They burned all the books that were not godly. They divulged all their practices. They actively did that in their confessing. Amazing. And extolling the name of Jesus is what led to that. Jesus is saying, when those three things are moving right in your life, it prevents you from abandoning your first love in Jesus. That's what we pray that God produces as a people, right, as a church. So let me just say um, here, before we, we do something together, um, we love doctrine here. If you've been here, I mean, we love being precise about what the Bible's saying. We love trying to look at, man, what is he teaching us? What is Jesus saying here? What's, what, what is this book for? Why is he writing? Why is the Holy Spirit of God inspiring this sentence, this verse? You, you know that. We're, we want to have a healthy polity. We want to have good elders in place. We want to have healthy membership. We want, we want all those things to be good. We want to serve, man. We want to see people that are just overly generous because God's been so generous in Jesus. We, we love all of those things. We love it. But those things have to be a pathway and not an end to itself. They have to be a pathway. They have to be a pathway to you loving and extolling Jesus. That's why they exist, right? That's where you see boredom Christianity and extolling Christianity. That's where you see religion and you see true Christianity because Christianity is not something we do for God. Christianity is something God does for us in Jesus Christ, right? So if we understand that, then all of our good theology, all of our angst and precision and wanting to do well here and serve well here and faithfully live here and see God add to our numbers and see God save you know, sinners and sanctify the saints, all of that is fueled by and ends in Worshiping Jesus' name and loving Jesus with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, sometimes those who know the most about Jesus love Jesus the least. I've seen that a lot. So we need to be ever serious about going after that. Because Jesus shows here it can happen to the best church. Happen to anybody. And I believe we're at a very critical transition in the life of our church. We are. I believe a year from now, it will look very different. There will be different people, different faces. We'll be in a different place. That doesn't change who we are and who we're celebrating and extolling. It's just a location. It's just different walls, different rooms. But the purpose hasn't changed. What's drawing, sinning, Men and women to God's self hasn't changed. We need to fight for that. So here's what I, what I want to do. Um, I want to just allow some time to do some repentance before we head to the Lord's Supper. We always celebrate the Lord's Supper because we want to be reminded. We want to remember of his broken body, his shed blood for us in our place. And so normally I give you guys time on your own, just in your own hearts, to examine your own hearts and confess sin and examine your yourself before the God of the universe. So here what I do is just, just not out loud, just we're gonna have a time where I'm gonna put a few verses on the screen, I'm gonna ask us a few questions one by one, and just kind of walk through them together. You're not confessing this out loud, just between you and God, let him, if he needs to, expose things in your heart, expose idolatry that's there, and let's repent of it, and then we're gonna enjoy the Lord's Supper, we're gonna celebrate Jesus' name, 
and we're going to ask him to preserve us. So here, here's the first one. Matthew 22. I'm just going to read it to you. Matthew 22, 37 to 38. Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The question is, do you desire to know and make much of Jesus above other things? What you desire most reveals what you love most. Repent and confess sin where it might be necessary. Confess the things that you love more or that you might demonstrate you love more by the affection in your heart towards those things, by the desiring of those things more than Jesus. Simply confess that to him. one is John 14 verse 21 whoever has my commandments and keeps them he is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. God loves us, and you say you love him, but do you obey him? Do you show you love Jesus by your obedience to him? Take some time to confess where there has not been obedience but passivity in your sin whether it was allowing lingering bitterness to sit or a cyclical sin that you continue to run towards instead of obedience and repentance and turning from sin. Confess that to him, asking him for the strength of the Holy Spirit of God with the ability to turn from that sin and turn towards Jesus.
1 John 2. 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So are you investing more time in temporary things that pass away or eternal things that abide forever? Repent of where you are investing more time in the temporary than that which will never pass. Just confess that to God. Repent of that sin. That you love the temporary more than the eternal. last one that, that we'll do together in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. <laughs> do you find God's commands to be burdensome or life-giving? Have you bought the lie that Jesus came to steal from you or to give generously in his son? Do you think God's trying to rob you of joy? Will give you joy. So confess where maybe you've bought the lie that his commands are to rob me, which is why I don't flourish in obedience, which is why I don't set my mind on the eternal things. And ask him for the help to see it as right, to see it as true, to see them as life-giving, to see them as glorious and good for you. Jesus, thank you that, that your promise is sure, that you will build your church. Thank you that in your grace you have continued to manifest your presence and activeness and movement and transformation and gospel work. God, may you continue to preserve your people. Father, would you help us as a people and, and help your church globally that you love and died for and bought God would you help us to always have you as our first and highest love 
adoration, affection, worship. Father, would you not remove your lampstand from this place? Would you continue to work graciously? May we not presume upon it, but actively ask you and plead with you and call to you, remembering that it is an act of grace, act of mercy. God, keep us a repentant people, a confessing people. Father, thank you for leading us here this morning for such a time as this. And God, might we see you bear fruit that lasts, like John says, to the glory and praise and extolling of your name. Help us, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.